You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everyone, what's up? Welcome to BibleProphecyTalk.com. My name is Chris White. Thank you for downloading this episode. If you have any questions for me about Bible prophecy or any other issues, you can email me through the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. Today I'm going to spend a lot of time answering an email that was sent in by a friend and a person who keeps me on my toes in relation to Bible prophecy issues. And he's sent in a very good question concerning the recent studies of Daniel and Mystery Babylon. The recent study, particularly the one of uh, just put out, Daniel chapter 7, in which it describes the wars of Antichrist, that is, Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 through about 45, describes the wars of Antichrist. This is pretty unambiguous. It's the Antichrist, he's conquering all kinds of different peoples, and it's just there. I don't think a lot of people would really argue that. It's just not brought up much because it doesn't really fit in with a lot of the current models of Bible prophecy. A warring Antichrist, somebody who's who's conquering. Uh, and of course that makes sense when we see in Revelation 13 that the world marvels at him in addition to him seemingly raising from the dead, but also they say, who can make war with the Antichrist? He's a great conqueror and seemingly invincible in those conquests. So we're, we're taking that idea, a, a warring Antichrist, a person who is conquering uh, all the way up until he sits in the temple, declares himself to be higher than anything called God, and he begins his persecution of the saints at that point. Now, his question is re in relation to another study that I did about Mystery Babylon. Both of those studies, by the way, uh, are heavily influenced by Charles Cooper of the Pre-Wrath Resource Institute. He is uh, proposed, and I have expanded on that proposal, that the Mystery Babylon city is Jerusalem, that they are, uh, the inhabitants of that city are harlots because they are embracing the Antichrist as their Messiah. Now, of course, they ultimately will realize at some point uh, after the, the so-called time of Jacob's trouble and the purification process there that their, their Messiah really was Jesus Christ, that he had wounded hands and wounded feet, but things get worse before they get better, and they are a city that embraces the Antichrist, and the world is essentially made uh, drunk by the fierceness of their fornication. They they fornicate with him so fiercely that the world is drawn into it and believes it, and there are uh, anyway, I could go on with the details. There is a great deal of scriptural support for this, and I would encourage you to check out that study if you have any uh, doubts about it, because I do think it's something that is uh, provable. It's, does, we don't have to speculate on it, in other words. Anyway, the question is in relation to that. If, if it's true that Mystery Babylon is Jerusalem and that the people will embrace uh, the Antichrist there as their Messiah, how does that work into the study that Antichrist will be a warring Antichrist. So he's recorded a message, and I'll play it. It's about a minute and 20 seconds long, and then I will discuss the answer after that. With the three beasts being overcome by the fourth beast, it's obvious that the Antichrist is going to face a lot of opposition, at least initially, and, and certainly not a pre-trib world peace and everybody. Uh, there's nothing wrong in those first three and a half years, and world peace, nothing but comfort. Um, scripture is certainly showing a different picture. With that opposition, 
and your other series on Mystery Babylon and how it appears that Israel completely embraces and promotes the Antichrist. And it doesn't even appear out of fear, but out of true worship, like they really have found their Messiah. With all that, where do you think, just in opinion, that Israel is during that first three and a half years? They've obviously, they're a part of some, there's a covenant with the many, but just what does that look like on the ground, knowing that the whole world's battling this guy, and yet Israel is going to come to worship him at some point. Have you thought that through in detail? So this is a really good question for a lot of different reasons, and it's something that I've wanted to expand on in greater detail and may do so in a mini documentary or just a small video, as I think this is such an important concept and one that is not um, not well known and it's not bec it's not the bible's fault the bible is very clear it's unambiguous about the points that i'm about to talk about but modern prophecy has such a different view of this that is in my opinion unscriptural so for example they will believe that the upcoming antichrist will be either a muslim himself or that he will be associated with islam and that that, that is the great enemy of uh, of this epic time that's coming the other view is that the Antichrist will be sort of a peacemaker, a new age kind of guy who says it's an all-inclusive thing and, you know, it's you know aliens and everything else. And I've held both of those views at one time or another. I could see certain elements of those being included in how it all plays out. But what scripture is saying here is something quite different. In Daniel 11, 36 through 45, that's the last half of Daniel chapter 11, as discussed in the previous study of Daniel 7, um, this is where we are given the Antichrist's um, early career. And that early career is one of warfare. He is conquering a lot of nations that are mentioned specifically here. The nations that are mentioned are all these Muslim nations that surround Israel. All of their enemies, when you see those maps of all their Muslim enemies surrounding Israel, those are, some of those nations anyway, are the ones that are specifically mentioned here in the Wars of Antichrist that he utterly demolishes uh, nations like Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia. He also mentions there in um, Daniel chapter 11, verse 41, that it says, and he shall also enter the glorious land. So he's entering Jerusalem, but not to conquer. And I'll show you why in a minute. He says, he'll enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. All three of those, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, are the Muslim areas surrounding Israel. They escape from his hand, which can only mean that he is pursuing them once he enters the glorious land. He, we, we are told in the last verse here in the chapter that this glorious land he enters for the purpose of planting his royal palace. It says, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. So he conquers all these Muslim nations on his way to setting up HQ in Jerusalem, and I would say uh, at that point or somewhere near that point, declaring himself to be the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. So I, I think that's what scripture is saying. We have a bunch of Muslim nations being completely destroyed. Those that are mentioned specifically, like, as I mentioned, Egypt and, and these, these kind of nations that we know surround Israel, we know are the enemies of Israel. But also what, what a critic might say is that 
it says, well, what about the king of the south that says shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships and they shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, right? He shall enter the countries, overwhelm them and pass through. So he's going to destroy those who attack him. But the king of the north, and as we mentioned in the previous study of Daniel 7, I quoted an article um, by J. Paul Tanner, who is a notable scholar uh, of, of Hebrew and in, in the Jordan University, I believe. And he, he wrote an article called Daniel's King of the North, Do We Owe Russia an Apology? And he basically shows to be hermeneutically consistent, the King of the North must be a coalition of Muslim nations, not Russia. Uh, and he goes through uh, a lot of work to demonstrate that. But I think it's a very sound argument, and it would make sense with context here. That is, all these nations that are trying to come against Antichrist and that he defeats are all Muslim nations. The other ones, we're told specifically, are Muslim nations, but the king of the north and south also would fall into that category. So... Anyway, that's one aspect of this. That is that the Antichrist is destroying Muslim nations. And that might even bring into an interesting idea who it is that tries to assassinate the Antichrist. It would make sense, therefore, that uh, you know, a Muslim assassin might even be the one who tries to assassinate him. Anyway, that's sort of speculation at this point and not really where I wanted to take it. But the interesting war game that you can do then is is probably more than interesting, it's scary, is what it is, based on the modern view of, of what is going to happen in prophecy. Let me start off by talking about what the Jews are expecting. They have the Old Testament too, as you might expect, and those um, that do hold to a literal view of prophecy believe that the Messiah will fulfill Ezekiel 38 and 39, that he will destroy the enemies of Israel, and he will then set up Israel is the city on the hill, the world capital. All the nations will come to Israel to pay respect to the Messiah. And that is their version of the end times. They're waiting for somebody to destroy their enemies and declare himself to be the Messiah and then put Jerusalem as the world capital. That Anything less than that won't be a fulfillment of their prophecies. Now, we have sort of set up, and I would say in violation of these chapters like Revelation 13, Daniel 11, Daniel 7, we have set up uh, an eschatological view which is totally uh, a setup for the Antichrist possibly. That is that we're all waiting for Gog Magog to happen before Revelation 20. I discussed this in a previous episode of Bible Prophecy Talk, which I would highly encourage you to listen to if you haven't already. It's basically saying that explicitly in Revelation 20, we're told that Gog Magog happens at the end of the millennium. That is, it says at the end of the thousand years, Satan is let out. He goes, gathers nations. Those nations surround the beloved city. They are completely and utterly destroyed. And they their, their deaths are a memorial for, for time immemorial. That happens explicitly at the end of the millennium after Satan's been in the abyss for a thousand years. There's just no way around that. We have to accept that the Gog-Magog war isn't going to happen for at least a thousand years. Now, there is a slight possibility of a dual fulfillment, but that dual fulfillment is our is the only hope that somebody that believes we're waiting on a Gog-Magog war can hold. 
at best they can say, well, Gog Magog is a dual fulfillment and I'm still expecting it. But what I show in that previous podcast is that that is based on a misunderstanding of Ezekiel and that Ezekiel is talking about the same thing that John was talking about in Revelation 20 and that we're not to expect another uh, event like that. Until, or, and if we are, which is currently what's happened, we, we all are expecting Gog Magog to happen any day, including any uh, in Jewish person who only has the Old Testament. Uh, they are wanting their Messiah to come, and if their Messiah is going to come, it's going to have to look like that as far as they're concerned. Now, we could argue with the Jewish person and say, no, he had to come first. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, uh, died for your sins, uh, bore the wrath of God. We, we could talk about that uh, with them and, and get them to see that their, their, their Messiah had wounded hands and wounded feet. But just like they were expecting Jesus to do to he they were expecting Jesus to do Ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine do you know what I mean so they're still in that mindset they're nothing less than than a, uh, a complete deliverer from their enemies and setting Jerusalem as the number one uh, city in the world will will work and the Antichrist knows that and I feel like this idea that Gog Magog is next is a part of that let me war game this with you. So let's say that, um, just as it says here in Daniel 11, the Antichrist is going around destroying the enemies of Israel. I mean, Israel's in a great big turmoil right now, surrounded by enemies. We're all, you know, told to hate and, and, and whatever their enemies, and maybe that's whatever, good reason. Uh, they are a dangerous, uh, you know, they've certainly, I don't know, we could go into all that stuff at some point. But the point is, is that we're all super scared of him. And here's this guy that's completely solving the problem through war. He's conquering utterly the enemies of Israel. And then he shows up in Jerusalem, sets his royal tents uh, in Jerusalem. And if that is that's the Gog Magog thing, you know, whether it happens in a slow way or whether these conquerings, these utter destruction of their enemies happens in any kind of fast way. What maybe he uses nuclear weapons or some other kind of force to utterly destroy Israel's enemies. Wouldn't that look like a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39? Here's a guy that has completely destroyed it. We are trained for good reason, because it's a true thing. It will happen that when Gog Magog happens it will be attributed to god that's the whole point of gog magog is that god can say look at this uh, great delivery and it's a testimony to him for all time but satan's essentially trying to push the clock forward and make himself get all the glory for the delivering of israel's enemies but the enemies that he's delivering them from are earthly enemies that he mostly had a hand in propping up uh, through the media and fear and you know all kinds of different things that he's been doing. So anyway, that that's a dangerous thing is because it sets up not just the Jews to believe that he is their Messiah, but it sets up a lot of Christians to believe that this great delivery of Israel's enemies is you know the Messiah. And I think that, of course, I don't think that anybody truly saved is going to believe that the Antichrist is um, you know is going to worship the Antichrist. But it certainly sets up a problematic situation for those that are maybe on the fence about that. And I think that, of course, makes a lot more sense out of Jesus' warnings about the Antichrist, saying, look, these people are going to say that they are me, that they're going to say that 
you know, I am him. They're, you know, he, he warns us about people that are not just claiming to be super peacemakers or, you know, Muslims or whatnot. He's warning that they're going to claim to be him. And that makes a lot more sense out of that. Also, while we're here in Daniel 11, I want to talk about three proof texts in here that I think validate the idea that the Antichrist will be a Jewish guy, which I think, I think that Daniel is sort of presupposing that people understand this. I don't think that, I, I think the language here is something that people would get, people would understand, not just the verses that I'm about to mention, but the whole context, him uh, setting up his royal tents in the glorious land, his, um, his conquering the enemies of Israel. I think, I think this is something that they would get. It's pretty on its face. But my, the three verses I wanted to take a look at are Daniel 11, 37 through 39. This is where we find the phrase God of his fathers in relation to the Antichrist. It says, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. So this is here in the New King James. It says God of his fathers, that is with a capital G refer, in reference to Yahweh. In this sense, in the New, King's, New King James, it's essentially saying that he's not going to regard uh, the God of his father, which would be Yahweh. Now, other Bible translations put this because they don't like that idea, not because of any textual reason, but because they don't like the idea, they change it to lowercase g and put gods of his fathers. And that's just a decision that the translators make. I've heard people like Thomas Ice try to make a big case that, you know, the underlying text is saying that it's a plural uh, God, but the underlying text is the is the phrase, uh, the same phrase that's used and all the other times this phrase is used in the Bible, it's translated as God of his fathers. And it's in reference to Yahweh. And it's idiomatic. That is, it's almost a phrase that people use to refer to Yahweh, the God of his fathers. Either he is regarding them or not regarding them in, in some context there. So this is the only time that a translator would make that decision. The word Elohim is neither plural nor uh, singular. It, it, it's, it sort of depends on the context. It's a lot like our English word for deer or sheep. Um, the sheep is lost. The sheep are lost. You could see that the sheep could be either singular, the sheep is lost, or plural, the sheep are lost. The word is the same. It just depends on the context. So anyway, my point is that this first, in, in Daniel 11.37, this God of his fathers is, in in my mind, a reference to this being uh, a Jewish guy. He's not regarding Yahweh, the God of his fathers. Now, this is reiterated in verse 38, where it says, a God which his fathers did not know. Again, a reference to this God that he is is worshiping. A God which his fathers did not know. Now, one could say, well, this is a Muslim who, you know, his fathers worshipped Allah, but in this scenario, he is no longer worshipping Allah, but some other god. And I would say that's possible, that this could be a reference to that. At the very least, you would say it could be either or, just on the two verses that we looked at. If you were disregarding the idea that the phrase God of his fathers is always used exclusively to refer to Yahweh and is idiomatic of that, if you disregarded that, you could say at least it's a 50-50. Maybe it's not Jewish. Maybe it's Muslim. There, it, Don't let anybody ever tell you, and they will try to tell you that this is a reference to a Muslim God. What they're trying to do is trying to be an apologist for trying to get away from the clear idea that it's talking about a Antichrist who is a, 
uh, a Jewish Antichrist. Did I say in, anyway? Um, but the next verse, I think, gives even more problems for that view. It says that um, that he w- with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge. So the first two verses say a god which his fathers did not recognize, or uh, the god of his fathers. But in this verse, it says in, the, in relation to that foreign to that same god, it's a foreign god. Now this is sometimes translated as strange god, um, and it's there's only two types of gods. There is foreign or strange gods, and there is Yahweh. And if you look at this word, you're going to see it used that way. You guys don't have anything to do with strange gods. It's just me, and it's all them. And in this scenario, one one needs to essentially believe, if you're believing the sort of mainstream pop view of this, that this Muslim Antichrist is, uh, he's not going to worship Allah anymore. He's going to worship some different god that's now referred to as a foreign god, and so this word, so it's saying that Allah is not a foreign god. It's it's giving way too much validity to Allah or any other god that some pagan was worshiping before this time. Do you understand what I mean? I think this is a this isn't just about Daniel eleven thirty seven. He shall not regard the god of his fathers. There's three verses here that are reiterating that this is a Jewish guy. And I would say there's other ways that we can determine this throughout scripture, but uh, I think that this is one of the primary ways here in Daniel 11, 11. And since we were here, I wanted to mention that. But there's another thing that has a lot more to do with what we are, have been talking about in this podcast. And that's found in verse 39. It says that he's, you know, he's this foreign God and him are, you know, conquering. It says, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Let me read the whole verse. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Who is them? Is the question here. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. He shall acknowledge and advance its glory. So we know what's happening there. He's advancing the glory of a foreign god uh, through these uh, conquering of these strong fortresses. So and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. What I think is happening here in context, because we have other verses in this saying that he is now overwhelming the um, the enemies of Israel. He's entering the glorious land in verse 41. Then in the last verse, verse 45, he's planting his tents um, uh, in Jerusalem. So what I'm saying here is that this is a reference back in verse 39 to him causing them, that is, Israel, to rule over many. And the reason that he would do this is because this is a prerequisite if you're going to declare yourself the Messiah of the Jews. You say you're the Messiah? Well, you make us rule over many, as Ezekiel 40 through 48 says, you know, that we're going to be this city on a hill that's ruling over the entire world. You do that for us, and we'll talk. So... He does the very thing that he needs to do in order to make this all work. And that is, in verse 39, he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So, that's, uh, I think, more proof within the chapter itself of what we've been talking about with the latest studies of Daniel and then in Mystery Babylon. If you haven't seen those studies, I encourage you to do so. Both of those can be seen at BibleProphecyTalk.com. A few quick show notes. Um, There's been some good questions about Daniel 9 that actually apply to some of the things that I've already said in Daniel 7. 
and I'll talk about why I'm taking just a short hiatus from the expositions, but it's really important that I get to Daniel 9 and explain that thoroughly, um, but I won't be able to do it for just a little while. And if you want some uh, reading uh, work, uh, sort of a, a, a pre-study, I would encourage you to read Charles Cooper's book, um, what's it called, The Elect, God's Elect in the Great Tribulation. It's a great book. It has an exposition there of Daniel 9, which I'll be taking pretty much as it is uh, and expanding on it. And it's also got a great exposition of Matthew 24, which I'd highly recommend. You can't really lose with that book. God's elect in the Great Tribulation, and that will be a good prepper for uh, when I get into Daniel 9. As I mentioned, I'm going to take a brief hiatus from the expositions of Daniel uh, for two reasons. The, the first is that I want to spend some time uh, doing this study video about the Sabbath, sh uh, should Christians keep the Sabbath in the New Covenant, and I want to do a really good job. That particular issue is something that is causing a lot of people to get into all kinds of various false teachings, and I think it's unnecessary because there's such a theologically rich uh, uh, explanation in Scripture about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the differences in the, what, what it means to be in the New Covenant. There's so much in there that I think we miss because, you know, it's ironic, you know, because somebody in the sort of uh, Messianic movement would say, oh, you can't really understand the Bible until you really understand the Old Covenant. But I would actually say that really understanding the Old Covenant helps you really understand the New Covenant. And I feel like a lot of the people that are in the Messianic movement and things like that they don't really understand what the Old Covenant was and what the difference between the New is. And it's again, it's not because the Bible is silent on the issue. I've got, I don't know how many pages of notes that are just scriptures on it. The Bible is very verbose on the issue. So, But because there's so much information in the Bible, it's really difficult for me to sort through what needs to go and what needs to not go and how to outline it all. I'm in the process of that. It's going to be a bit of a deal with production, but I want to do a good job. So um, I'm going to keep doing that and let Daniel take a brief break for a month. The second reason that I'm taking a hiatus from the Daniel stuff is because uh, we have decided to move at the end of the month. We are really excited about it. We're still moving in the state of Tennessee, but it's still a lot of work. And you can imagine just moving and stresses and all the question marks that are around. So I need to I need to deal with a lot of that stuff really busy right now, but I'm going to continue to do podcasts about prophecy and stuff. And really, prophecy is something I want to really do a lot more with in the future. I've been very encouraged lately from your uh, emails and things like that. For so long, I've been thinking I've been doing these studies about prophecy for my own self, which is you know why I set out to do it, so I could understand it better. I think the best way to learn is to teach, and so I'm trying to learn stuff uh, as I go. And uh, But I kind of felt like I was doing it for myself and by myself. But recently I've heard some great things, encouraging things that people are uh, listening. So thank you for that. It means quite a lot to me. Anyway, I'll stop rambling and I'll just say thank you for your time. If you have any questions, you can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com. Thanks. Hey everyone, thanks a lot for listening. My name is Chris White. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to write. My email address is chris at chriswhiteministries.com. For those of you that are getting a lot out of these audios or videos, consider supporting the show in one of two ways. The first is financially through a donation. This is a full-time ministry, so believe me when I tell you it really does help keep the wheels turning over here. I literally couldn't do this without you. 
There's a PayPal button at virtually any one of my websites like chriswhiteministries.com. The second way that you can support the show is through a five-star rating and or comment on iTunes iTunes considers that a very important part of their rating system, and it would really help me out a lot. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time.